My name is Ian Bick, and you're tuned in to Locked In with Ian Bick. On this week's episode, I sit down with Brian Tamburino. Brian was facing 10 years in a Connecticut state prison after selling cocaine to an undercover officer. We all make mistakes, experience failure, and fall down in life. But if you decide to get back up and use it as fuel to your fire, you can choose to not let it define you. You can make it through to the other side and turn it into an opportunity. I went from owning a popular nightclub when I was 19 years old to becoming a federal inmate by the time I was 21. Join me, Ian Bick, as I interview people from all over the country who have experienced the rock bottom of the American justice system. Ryan, my man, thanks for coming on today. Thank you for having me. Really actually excited to have you. You're like our first guest that is not like a major TikTok star, obviously besides my dad's episode. <laughs> um, but I think it'll be good to hear your story and, and have you on the show because your story is so relatable to the average person. And I hope that's like something the audience will take away from this at the end of the episode. Now, I like to jump in and start at the beginning of someone's story. I think it's important to find out like where they come from. So what's your childhood like? How did you grow up? How were you raised? And, and where you grew up to? Shelton. And, Connecticut, uh, right? Shelton, Connecticut. Yep. And um, my childhood was fine, right? And, and I, I tell people this oftentimes if they ask that, like, there was no, like, big traumatic event. There was no, like, uh, crazy chaos. It was just, But the, the one thing that I found always kind of followed me was that I was always over the top enthusiastic. My enthusiasm didn't really translate well to certain situations because if people saw that, like, why is this guy so loud or why is he acting rambunctious, right? Something like that. It, it would always, it, it wouldn't necessarily mesh with the people that were trying to be more calm or laid back where my friend's parents would be like, why can't this kid just chill the F out, right? Um, so it was a lot, I had a lot of fun. And I think that ultimately that behavior or style of living was what translated into my love or addiction for everything that got me to not only where I am now, but where I found myself in a criminal situation, moving toward the wrong crowd, doing the wrong things. Did you right. grow up wealthy, middle class? How'd you grow uh, up? Middle class. Middle class. Yeah, we were middle class. Now in high school, are you the popular kid or are you shy? Dude, in high school, I was such a nerd, but I always wanted to fit in with everyone, right? I shouldn't even say nerd because I wasn't like good at school, right? I just kind of went there because like, I'm a very intelligent person, but I didn't put in much effort. And I think that um, me always wanting, let's say uh, first thing that comes to mind is tanning, right? So when I was in high school at the time, everyone was tanning. It was the big like uh, Jersey Shore days GTL. And like, I, I just kind of skipped the G. I never hit the gym. So I was a pretty heavy kid. Um, I remember even like fourth grade, I was probably like 160. And then high school, I've been the same weight, 250 since high school. Um, and I would try to like be the class clown and I was pretty good at it, right? So I had a lot of people laughing at me, but what I didn't realize at the time is like, they really were laughing at me. They didn't think that I was just like this popular, funny guy. So I found myself surrounded by a lot of people. Um, but we were back to the tanning subject. So in high school, everyone's tanning and I went way too often, but because I was a heavy kid, my neck would like crease. So I remember one day I was sitting in class and this kid was like, uh, 
how, how can you still have that white line on your neck, right? Because I'm very fair-skinned, but then I'm brown because uh, I'm tanning. Except uh, I didn't lift my neck up when I was in the tanning bed. So, um, yeah, I had this big white stripe. And, and, and uh, I think that the, the, the moral of that story is that as a result of me trying to fit in, I actually made myself stand out, but in a bad way. Now, these people you're attracting, does that bring you on to start selling drugs? Yeah, I think that because I was putting myself in the wrong scenarios with the people that were embracing bad behavior um, and found it really entertaining and like actually liked me being around because they were doing all the same things that I was, um, it was very easy to fall into that scene. And how old are you when you sold your first drug and what is that drug? Uh, I started selling drugs at 23. And I started selling cocaine immediately. Why cocaine? Uh, honestly, blow was my first love. And, and I say that like with a smile on my face even to this day, uh, it's definitely a problem. But uh, and it, it's, it was a problem from day one, right? When I start something like that, it's just like fl- foot to the, like full throttle. When did you try cocaine for the first time? I was 16. 16. So in between 16 and 23, when you started selling, what were you doing? Did you work or were you just supported by your family? Right. No. So I started working in a restaurant at 16, which is how I, be, how, how I got exposed to it. How did you get exposed to it in the restaurant? So, I mean, have you ever worked in a restaurant? Yeah. Right. So people just, people in the restaurant just party. And it was a very lax environment. Like I'll come in on a Sunday morning. The managers are sitting at the bar. They're sleeping off a hangover. They're starting to drink. They're starting to do blow to pick up to get um, ready for the the morning rush or something. And And these managers had no issue giving a 16-year-old cocaine. At that time, I don't think so. Wow. And what year is this? 2000, 2006. And it's just readily accessible? Right. I mean, I, I asked, right? But at the time, these, these people didn't care about me. I was just another employee. And I was a 16-year-old kid working in the kitchen. So, I mean, they, they, uh, I had one guy that on Friday nights, I would ask him like, hey, man, uh, can you leave and hit the package store for me? And he would leave in the middle of the dinner rush go to the package store, come back, and then we would just drink in the kitchen, right? And people, some people knew, some people didn't. But either way, that, that was the first exposure to the drug. Do you think that lack of them caring towards you carried over to when you started selling and like to, to clients and to customers? Because when you're, when you're putting cocaine or a drug like that out onto the street, there's a potential that someone could possibly die from that, from an overdose. Right. Was there any thought about caring going through your mind at all? So here's the thing, right? I was not like some giant kingpin by any means. I was a drug addict and I just dabbled in the sales for a little while, like because I wanted free blow. Like, that, that was your motivation to sell because you wanted right. the drug for free? I wanted it for free. So you weren't motivated by money? I made in a couple of years, probably like it's an exaggeration, but 50 bucks and a couple bar tabs. That's it. Like no money. So in the grand scheme of all of this, like I essentially went to jail to get high for free. And 
I always cared about everyone. Like people would say like, why don't you pick this up and, and sell it instead? And I'll say like, I'm just trying to give these guys a good time and I'm not trying to ruin anybody's life, you know? Um, because everyone that I would like hang out with or give it to or whatever, they were all my friends for the most part, you know? Um, I would just make a little bit of money off them. Do you have any business partners in this cocaine business? No. It's all no. solo. It was 100% me. How do you figure out where to get the product from? I mean, I had friends, people that I knew, you know, and at that point it was just a matter of like getting a little bit more than I was used to. Now, so you're a very small fish in right. this. You're barely making any money. Right. I've never heard of a, of a cocaine dealer that doesn't make money, but I guess <laughs> you were one of them. And um, were you ever put in dangerous situations because like you're this white, nerdy, chubby looking kid that's selling cocaine in Connecticut? So I was not, a, at some point I transitioned from being white, chubby, nerdy to more of an aggressive nature surrounded by kind of aggressive people, right? And I don't believe, I'm, I'm sure that at some point I was in um, a dangerous situation, but I was so oblivious at first to re really any danger because as I began to drink more and I started to get like, I also have a problem with alcohol. Um, I don't drink anymore, but um, at the time I was drinking heavily every day, all these different types of liquor and I got it myself in all these crazy situations. Um, but I never noticed it as a problem, which is why I started to like lose people that were not like me, uh, people that cut me off or certain crews don't want to be around me or whatever it is. I never got, I never realized at the time that it was a sticky situation until it was too late. And I think that's ultimately what got me to where I am now or where I was then. Do you think you were selling drugs in order to be liked, like have women be attracted to you, people around you? Yeah, of course. I think that, uh, when you live the lifestyle of being in the drug scene, it's easy to go to the bar and say like, hey ladies, let's go back to my place after this. I got a couple of my buddies. We're all just gonna get lit, right? And it's much more appealing than being like some sloppy drunk that just says like, hey, wanna come hang out with me after and maybe I'm gonna get laid, you know? Um, so yeah, a big part of it was popularity. I mean, I totally understand that point of view. I mean, I was, I never sold drugs or got into drugs, but when I was throwing these parties and I was like the man, a lot of it, you know, was driven by that popularity and, and that surge of, you know, wanting to be liked. And I think a lot of people do things because they want to be liked that maybe they will regret later on or don't realize at the time what they're getting themselves into. Um, so it's like, a, it's very powerful in that sense. Now, what's a, what's a financial breakdown of selling cocaine? I know you didn't really make much money, but how much are you buying it for? How much are you selling it for at that time? And could it have been profitable if you were looking at it from a business perspective? Yeah, so I don't remember exact numbers of purchase or sales or something like that, but here's what I do remember. First, if I was in a, a fiend, it could have been profitable from a business perspective, right? And second, my breakdown was when I would pick something up, I'd be like, all right, this, for those that can't see, I'm moving my, I'm cutting this in half. This is to break even. This is all mine. 
and that's just kind of how I went with it. And, and like, this was just party, whatever. At my peak, I was probably doing like a quarter a day. And how how much is that? Is that a quarter? Is yeah. That, Seven grams. Seven grams of coke. Yeah. Is, is that enough peak. to kill someone or? Maybe. Maybe. I'm not really sure. When I got out of prison, I went for this, like, I just kind of tried to, to clean, obviously clean my whole life up, right? And I went to therapy and I saw a doctor. And one of the doctors that I saw was to get my heart checked out to see if, like, there had been any damage. Now, I didn't have any signs of there being damage to an organ, but I just wanted to double check because I was doing so much right and um thankfully no damage to the heart and who are you selling to kids or people your no, age no no never never, never. Kids. Okay. always always my friends the people around me my age a little bit older okay never so it was never anyone you didn't know until the end until the end until that's how it end. always works right so and the only thing you're selling is cocaine there was never any right. other drugs or anything like that yeah so I think a, a big a big reason is like I mentioned before I don't want to hurt anybody, and the other thing is I don't I don't smoke weed, so I wouldn't even I don't, I don't even really touch weed or never really have because I don't know about any of you, but if I smoke weed, I just get sleepy, I eat a lot, so pretty much it's like you're spending money to like you want to talk the, about the economics of it like I'll spend money just to go to sleep when I'm pretty good at napping anyway, right? Um, Whereas with cocaine, I, I, I'll buy a little bit of blow, I'll do it, and then uh, now I got an extra 12 hours of daylight. And, and that brought me to um, a whole nother level because at that point I started to hate birds. And the reason is I would promise myself every single day, like I never wanna hear these birds chirp in the morning again, just because like I would, I would try to go to sleep, try to go to sleep, can't go to sleep, can't go to sleep. And then eventually, the sun would come up and now it's time to start my whole day and I've got these annoying birds chirping and like I don't know what what it was about that sound but it was like to me it was the sound of like desperation right because now it's time to go to work or everybody else is asleep and now I have to spend the whole day up looking back on it now now that you read all those articles and see in the news about like fentanyl and people overdosing from things like cocaine do you have any regrets in, in regards to that? How does that make you feel? Because uh, that very could have much happened to you back then, right. uh, to you as a user or to you as, uh, or to one of your clients that was buying from you. Right. I think that today's influx of fentanyl into all drugs is very disappointing. And had it been me at the time, I don't know that I would have tried it and, and I don't know that I would have got, I, I know I would have tried it, but I know that I would not have gotten as deep into blow had I known that at the time or experienced that. And even the smallest, uh, even if I had questioned it a very tiny bit about like questioned my experience using it at all. Um, reason I say that is because I'm not trying to die. Right. And I would have never put anybody that I gave this to at risk like that. And that's a big part of why I never transitioned to moving anything else. What's going through your mind on an average day as a drug dealer? Are you afraid because the possibility of getting caught or at this point in your life, do you just not give a shit very laid back about it and there's just no regard? So I was very laid back 
And that was, and I trusted a lot of people that I should not have trusted. Um, but toward the end, I was doing so much and I was always paranoid, right? I'd be driving home from work because I, I had a day job, it was corporate. And I'd be driving home from work and I'll see a car behind me and I always thought I was being followed. And I'll be on my front porch and across the street, there were some bushes in front of the neighbor's house. And I was convinced that, like, I would hear a noise. I was convinced it was the police. Um, the paranoia said it, and it was just like, I always thought I was in a sticky situation, but only toward the end when it was really too late. And on that thought, were there any times that you almost got caught? I know you eventually get caught, but were there almost like any near case situations? Maybe you got pulled over, they did a search at work or anything like that? Dude. I, I was the, I've never, they've never done a search at work, but I almost got caught either drunk driving or with product on me at almost, if I had to guess 10, 12 times. And it wasn't because of the suspicion of having drugs on me. It was always because let's, but I was always really good at talking my way out of it. I've received more breaks than I, I should have. And an example is, it's like Halloween night, a couple of years before, maybe a year or two before I got arrested. I had stuff in my car. Uh, me and my buddy were at a bar, downtown Shelton drinking. We were going to meet these girls in Fairfield, right? And uh, Fairfield, Connecticut. We're driving to that bar and I was speeding and I got pulled over by a state trooper. So one trick that I thought was good and and i guess it's worked in the past but i would keep a pack of gum in the center console like the kind where it's the paper wrapper so that i can just like slowly eat it and not have to worry about unwrapping before the cop gets to the window and um see that's the kind of thinking that i had at the time because i was always in in a situation that i was planning on how to get out of before it actually happened why do you think you put yourself into those situations? Why drive drunk? Why, why do any of that? I was reckless, right? Always reckless. And I did everything. I was over the top with everything. But I got pulled over on the highway. State trooper says, uh, but they come to the passenger side, not the driver because it's the traffic, right? So he's like, what's going on? You were speeding. And I said, I don't know. This guy, like, I'm designated driver tonight. It sucks. Why does it smell like beer? Because while well, you're talking in my buddy's face, he's been drinking all night. And uh, and you're drunk while this conversation's going on. Right. And ultimately, he lets me go, speeding ticket. Then later that night, I'm in Fairfield. Once again, same car, stuff in the back, brake light out. Brake light that had been out for about eight months. But like I said, I'm not making any money off selling. So I don't, I don't, want, I don't have the money to pay for a light bulb. <laughs> and... Uh, I got pulled over later that night. Once again, drunk, pop a piece of gum, and now we had been drinking for like another three hours. The cop comes up, he's blah, 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 your taillight's out. I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry. Use the designated driver line again. He's about to let me go, and then the girls that we were going to, he says, where are you going? I said, we're going to meet with these, these girls, whatever. And um, the girls that we were gonna meet with pulled around the, the, the median, parked on the other side of the road, start yelling like, hey, you coming, whatever. He's like, those are the girls. I said, yeah, bro, this is why I'm trying to get out of here. And um, the point that I'm trying to make is that rather than just 
taking the win and leaving, I started to make a lot of jokes like, hey, officer, come back here. Let me, uh, you know, you know what I mean? Just like joking around with him, trying to like impress the women rather than just getting out of there and realizing that I just caught another break. So this is twice in one night. Um, very close encounters, but I laughed it off for months and years. My friends tell that story to this day. Like, I can't believe you got out of both both of those. Do you look back on it now and, and say, think to yourself that this could have went so much differently? Yeah. Like you're, I look at situations in my life and I'm like, some of the things I was lucky enough to get through, had they gone another way, would have seriously changed my life on a whole nother level. Yeah. So with you, you know, if you had even killed someone that night by drinking and driving or anything like that, it could have changed your life drastically. I've probably broken the law more times than I can count. And especially when I was drinking heavily, because at one point I used to make friends to uh, jokes to my friends that I was a better driver when intoxicated than I was sober. And and that was like 100% true because I never used to let anyone drive me. Right. So just think about countless times that I put everyone on the road in danger just because I wanted to have a little fun. I could have, I got my first DUI when I was 21. I mean, I'm sure that's the shit that keeps you up at night too. When you see other people that don't come out of situations like that alive, like you see every day, someone crashed from a DUI, someone died. That could have very well have been you. Right. And like, I know I think about situations I got out of and that shit still haunts me and and keeps me up at night. Right. It's gotta be a scary thought. And that was a big part of me. Like, that's a big part of me staying sober today because I'm just thinking about like when it when it was time for me to make amends to like say my family members or something there's no way for me to make amends to someone that I may have happened to pass on the street that day right so the only way that I can really do it now is to try to live right and not make it happen again so that I don't put other people in danger anymore now May of 2016 you finally get arrested describe that scene for me what's it like A few months before, maybe six months before May 2016, a guy that I was close friends with at the time, he he calls me out of the blue and he's like, do you want to go to this place in Fairfield? Now, I hadn't been hanging out with him like in like we, we would meet somewhere. Right. But there was no situation where he would ever call me and ask me to pick him up. So I, I said, yes, I left the bar. I went to pick him up and he was on foot with his his other friend. So now two red flags in a row. I um I pick them up, we drive to Fairfield, some bar. Uh I forgot what it was. It was near the Fairfield train station. Are you familiar? Uh, Alright, so there's a there's a bar right next to the train station in Fairfield. I pull up there, he introduces me to this girl. I'm like, no, 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 I don't know what you're talking about. He's like, No, this is my friend, she goes to Sacred Heart, all of this. Um, and I said, you know, I trust him. And for months, this girl was calling me to meet up. I'm trying to switch up locations and there I'm playing right into, to, she, she ultimately was a police officer and she was a police officer, right? She was an undercover. So you were selling drugs to an undercover officer, right? And this is how I got caught up. Um, and this guy had set me up. So why did he set you up? I, to this day, I've not found out. 
I got, I, I never asked him at that point. I was convinced it was him. I said, this is it. I, I don't like it. You know, I'm not ever going to talk to him again. Uh, I've seen him maybe twice. He's tried to say hello. I just kind of nonchalantly brush it off or pretend I don't see him. And the uh, reason is because, I mean, you think about it like, is it worth the confrontation now with where I am? And I personally don't think so. Well, you also have to look at the question, did he technically save your life for the better? Right. Had he not snitched, and obviously snitching isn't an acceptable thing, but had he not done that, you have to look at yourself now. Your life is going to be, you could be dead right now. You, you really don't right. know. And, and that's, that's actually a very good point because at my sentencing, um, after they had sentenced me, they said, the, ju- the judge, uh, what was his name? Earl Richards, he says, do you have anything that you'd like to say before you, we take you in? And I just said, like, thank you to the Fairfield Police Department because it ultimately did save my life. I have no doubt about it that I would be in a much worse situation now had I continued down that path. So they do this three-month or several-month undercover investigation. Right. You sell to an undercover female agent multiple times. They don't arrest you yet. Then May 2016 comes along. You finally get arrested. What happens during that scene? So I'm driving to work that morning, and I look in the rear view. I told you I was paranoid, but I know that this is true. So with the old Impala undercover cars, if they hit the blinker because the blinkers have strobes in them, it would have a quick flicker before the blinker actually turned on. And I noticed that, so I moved back into the left lane. And then the car moved back, and then I had to get off the exit right, and the car moved back right. So at this point, I know it's, I'm convinced, right? I go to work, I forget about the entire day. I'm coming home from work. It's a funny story because it was actually, uh, my girlfriend at the time had just graduated from her master's program and I was supposed to meet her, but I was like, all right, let me just stop and meet this person quickly. But when I pulled up to this four-way intersection in Fairfield, all of a sudden my car is surrounded most except for two of them were masked the police officers were masked and like ski masks yeah like um those black uh what do you call it? late neoprene do you know what i'm talking about like the baklava type things or whatever right pretty much to conceal who their identities um guns drawn and, and see i'm still trying to talk my way out of it at that point i knew what it was how do for. you how do you talk your way out of this situation i was not able to but i said like wow officers this, all this just for running a stop sign because i knew i rolled through the sign right um turn off the car this and that they take me in and they drive the car to the um they, they didn't get it towed they drew drove it to wherever they drove did it. you have drugs in the car yeah at the time i got very lucky but they already had a warrant for your arrest at that point when exactly. they got you. Okay. Exactly. So they had to make a whole big scene. They couldn't just come to your house peacefully. They had to like pull you over and do this whole thing. At the exact same time that they pulled me over, I was just about to move back in with my mother and she just moved into a new place. So they were raiding her house at the same minute that they were arresting me. What's going through your mind when they're slapping the cuffs on you? Honestly, it didn't hit me until I had been locked in there for a couple of hours because I was still really high. Now, I read in one of the articles that you were selling next to a school. If you weren't selling to kids, why even bother selling next to a school? Right. That's a great question. So the articles are very misleading. I told you that this girl, I was trying to switch up spots, right? 
uh, when we would meet and when, when I would meet the undercover officer and it wasn't actually, it, it wasn't that I was hanging out in elementary schools waiting for some kid to come out. It, it, it was that she would say, meet me at this commuter lab. And, and according to the state law, a school zone consists of like, obviously schools, but also daycares or day facilities. So like if, if you have a house with that's and you're licensed to run a daycare and housing projects are also grouped into that, which I think is, is, is a setup, right? You got bamboozled. Right. So we would, I'd say like, no, meet me at this, but it's in within a certain radius, not linear miles. So if you, as the crow flies, there may be a, a, uh, daycare in someone's house right over there that I've not known about. I think this is just a commuter lab, but actually this is a good location for them to put me, uh, uh, to set me up in, in that specific situation because they're really trying to make time stick. They thought I was a kingpin. So, um, and then finally when they pulled me over, once again, it was in front of a school. It just happened to be on that road. Once you get arrested, you're brought to the local jail or police station. What's the booking process like? So Fairfield count, uh, Fair, sorry, Fairfield Police Department. Uh, they brought me in. They start to ask me questions. They tell, ask me, "Where's this? Where's the stuff in your mother's house?" I'm saying, "Listen to me. I've got everything in my car. That's it. I had like." They didn't know you're the world's worst drug dealer at right, that point. Right. They thought I was this guy, man. So they're like. I felt terrible for my family because like my siblings were young at the time. So obviously I would never bring anything around them. Um, but they didn't know that I'm like this nice guy with a drug problem. So they're flipping drawers and, and dressers and couches and cutting stuff open. And, and I feel bad for my family. So I'm telling them like, listen, just leave my mother's house alone. Everything that you see in the car, that's all there was. And I only had like three grams for personal use in the car. Were you right? talking to them without a lawyer? To say that, right? And just like leave her stuff alone. Um, and then my girlfriend was blowing up my phone. Like, where are you? Because we were supposed to meet at dinner for her graduation. And Wow, you dropped the ball on that one. Right. And, or Well, she's like a four X's ago at this point. But um, she's blowing up my phone and they have like, the three grams that I was telling you about, like maybe $20 cash and my cell phone on the table. And um, there was one guy's outside looking at my car. The detective is like a, a huge jerk. He answers the phone when she's calling. And I'm like, listen, I just got arrested. Don't call me again. I'll talk to you when I get out of this situation. And then I hung up the phone. And now he's even more mad. They put me in the cell. And after taking the mug shots and stuff, they put me in the cell and I'm just waiting. Do you get out that same day? So, yeah, I called my mother with my phone call. She's like my lifesaver, bro. That was your first phone call? Yeah, she, she's like my biggest supporter and everything. And even back then, it's like, it's really funny, actually, because the, the police that were raiding her house went up to her husband um, and asked, like, started asking questions. And she's like, you better not say a word to these people, <laughs> your you know? mom's an old school. Yeah. Yeah. So how much was your bond to get out that day? Oh, I don't remember, but it's different than like a federal case. You have to only pay a percentage in the state to get out. Right. So I think I ended up paying back maybe 
10,000 to the bond agency. Yeah. Yeah. And you lose that money. You don't get it. Right. Never receive the money back. So you go home that day and then an article comes out about you with the mugshot of the century. You're in in the yellow (laughs) jumpsuit. It's great. You look high as a kite in it. (laughs) What was the backlash from that mugshot and those news articles all over town? You're in a small town. um, People recognize you. Right. What's the backlash? Do friends stop talking to you? Are people saying anything to you? What what happens to your job? So at that point, um, the police had taken my car when they locked me up. And, and it's actually uh, funny because he was like, the lead detective was boasting like, I'm going to be driving around your new car, this and that. But what they didn't know is that I was broke. I just had a nice car that I had loaned and uh, I had out on a loan. So I was like, you could have it. You just got to pay the bank back, you know? And, and uh, I was a smart ass with them like the whole time. So when we got, um, when I got home, I had no car. I had no money. I was living with my mother again. Um, and then I tried to go to work the next day. I borrowed my sister's vehicle. And we had a, I worked at this company in Wilton. Did they know about the arrest? So they didn't until the next, it was, that was like a Friday, I think. So they didn't know about it until Monday because it hit Twitter and their company was tagged in it. So, uh, because the, the Fairfield police department was like, if you don't help us, then we're putting you everywhere. And that is why the story looks so bad, right? That's why the story makes me out to be a kingpin because I didn't help them. So, and they think that I'm part of this like huge operation, which has absolutely nothing to do with Fairfield at all except I was caught in Fairfield. That's the only component that's, that's, that's related to. So that's why it says uh, number of school zones. That's why it says large quantity bagged up. That's why it says like uh, all of these different things. And that's why it was shared to like every social media and news outlet that Fairfield had access to. Yeah, the day I was arrested, uh, the, art, the headlines before, I, I think while they were slapping the cuffs on me, they already had the headlines going out on Twitter. Danbury, teen nightclub owner arrested by FBI and IRS on 15 federal charges. And that was just everywhere. Everyone from high school is retweeting it. It's all on Facebook. People are bad mouthing it. And I think that's just like one honestly shitty situation about the current criminal justice system, because it's not, you know, innocent until proven guilty. It's guilty until proven innocent. And those articles hit, you're losing your job, you're losing relationships, you're losing friends. And that's just one side of the story. You're not even giving a chance to explain your side. Most of the time, these news organizations publish and then they'll ask you Mm -hmm. for feedback or comment. And most of the time you'll say no on advice of counsel, but that stuff's already out there. And you don't know who that's getting tainted to or what people's opinions are. Like for you to lose your job in that moment, is that really a fair situation? I don't know. You had no effect on the job. You weren't selling drugs at the job. So it just it's one of those things that like needs to kind of change in the world. Right. I agree. And in and, and my experience with uh, losing the job was that I walked up to the door and I had a key card to get in and I went to swipe and it didn't work. And I've never been I've still to this day not been officially fired like terminated by management. I think that's how the Twitter uh, workers are feeling right now. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, but yeah, I I had no bank account. I had, they took my cell phone, so I didn't have a phone. Um, They were probably able to get on my Facebook. I don't know. Uh, But an old friend of mine told me that someone had been messaging him. I just 
did away with all social media because I didn't want to see people that I had thought at one point to be friends or acquaintances or whatever sharing my article or anything like that on their stories to say like, haha, look at this guy. Because I, honestly, that's hurtful, right? How it, did seeing that article affect your mental health? Horribly. My mental health was was in grave danger like it was the worst it had nearly worst it had ever been because it's so discouraging to log on to the internet or just walk around thinking that everyone that you see has also seen you right in in, in such a bad light and I knew the whole story but not everyone did so they're only seeing what they believe the news is reporting properly but I had never done uh, I was 70% innocent in that other than meeting this this officer, right? No, and selling drugs to your friends. Right, yeah. So, I mean, I did a lot of shitty things, but... Do you stop using drugs at this point? Or yeah. Or you go cold turkey? Yeah, so my sobriety date is May 20th, 2016. Wow, Yeah, thank you. So, the second you got arrested, that was the time that you stopped doing drugs? Yeah, because it, it's, it's, uh, it's one of those situations, is it odd or is it God, right? We got an attorney that my mother knew uh at the time i had never been in that serious of trouble so i didn't have a criminal attorney and my mother knew this attorney and she got me this guy and um he just happened to be sober too and it was kind of inspirational a little bit because he's like listen you he also kind of sold it to me as in like listen you stay sober i'm gonna do everything i can to get you out of, out of this and my thought is like guys like me don't get in trouble so i didn't think i was gonna have a penalty um, I stay sober for an extended period of time. I'm going to therapy. I'm getting all these letters uh, from ILP and the therapist and people in uh, like my sponsors and, and stuff, like all these different letters. And, and we're just turning them in every day at court. But then when I found out like, all right, sentencing time. Did you um, feel entitled like that? You were this middle-class white kid that shouldn't get jail time for selling some drugs. <laughs> I don't know that I felt entitled and I think it's because of the years, the, the track record of doing really crappy things that at many times I felt guilty about doing. And you were hoping your luck wouldn't run out. Exactly. Now, did your mom and dad know about, or your family know that you were not only selling drugs, but using drugs actively? No. So I was very good at hiding my drug use and a lot of my alcoholism. Like my mother had very little idea now she knew that i drank but she had never seen me more than what i would consider fucked up like she had never I, i've passed out or something but she didn't know that i was drinking every day and at the time of like up to the arrest like the last year or two years i hadn't been live, living with her so when i would see her i'd be sober or at least appear sober you right. ever try to ask for help or you from, just for, for anyone from your parents, from your girlfriend, or was that not even a thought to ask someone, Hey, I need help. I'm addicted and, and I need to get some help. No, never. I've never asked for help for that situation before I got arrested. I've never told my family, like I've got a drug problem. It was always something that I was kind of like ashamed of trying, uh, of telling them or ashamed of bringing to light because I thought that my family would be judgmental and the friends that knew that I had a drug problem, they just, they've tried to say like, Hey buddy, you know, it's a, it's a Tuesday night. Like what happened to only on Fridays and Saturdays? 
And at some point they just got tired of it because I was not only just uh, rude, but then I became like a liability to these people thinking that, uh, oh, maybe someone's going to show up and harm us rather than just Brian. Right. Um, and I had been cut off from almost everyone at that point, except the people that I was actively getting high with. So it was like no opportunity for me to ask them for help because they needed help themselves. So you were just around a bunch of people that were just constantly enabling you. Correct. And you guys were essentially enabling each other. Correct. Do you think that goes through a lot of people's minds that are currently addicted to any type of substance right now? Yeah, I, I think that if you have a bad enough addiction, you don't want to be around people that you see doing well. And, and, and or in, in most cases, right? This is obviously very generalized, but I don't want to be unemployed and then be around a whole bunch of rich, um, successful folks that uh, have made something of themselves because it makes me feel bad. So in the sense of like me not being able to put together a couple of hours of sobriety and then I see all of my good friends doing well and living to their potential, then it's like, now I've got some internalizing to do. I have to start looking at like, why is this a problem for me? Or like, why can't I be like them? And I feel like an outcast. And the only way to really solve that problem is to put yourself around people that are similar, in which case fall into crowds like reckless behavior, drug addicts, alcoholics, and so on, right? What are the final charges you end up getting charged with? Mm. So, um, you mean what was my sentence or the actual no, the, charges? the charges. Like what was the actual on the sheet of paper that you get? What are you charged with? How many felonies? Any misdemeanors? Anything like that? So no misdemeanors. I don't remember exactly. Do you have it written down? Because I believe it was seven, seven felonies. Seven fel- Wow. Five or seven. One of the two. Do you get a public defender or a paid attorney? No, I had a paid attorney. You so that paid. first attorney that I told you was sober. Uh, he was a great guy, but he wanted me to turn myself in in October. Um, long story short, he was uh, he had history with the judge, so he didn't want to go up against the judge. Um, and then at that point, I had started dating a new girl, and against all better judgment, she gave me enough money to hire a new attorney. Uh, this new girl you started just gave you money to hire an attorney. Correct. That's a good girl right there. Yeah, she, she was she was very nice, but I, I also uh, probably damaged <laughs> damaged some of her life at uh, even, even though I was sober. But uh, she, yeah, so she was trying to keep me out of prison. And um, she gave me, I don't know, however much. I got a new attorney and that attorney ended up buying me like another three months. Do you so, take a plea deal or you go to trial? No, so... I would have gone to trial if you were caught red-handed. What are you going to trial about? Honestly, I was just thinking like, listen, and I told my, my attorney this a number of times, like it, it would have been a horrible decision to go to trial. But I said the prosecutor was not coming off of 10 years. That's what they wanted to give you. 10 years. Mandatory. Flat. Mandatory 10. And I just told my attorney, like, if I'm already going away for 10 years, we might as well just gamble try to make me seem innocent. And of course that wouldn't have panned out well knowing what I know now, but I was desperate. The book at you. Right, exactly. 
Um, so you agree to the 10 years. So when I went to final sentencing, uh, they nollied some of the charges. I don't remember which. And then they gave me 10 years suspended after 18 months. And then when, uh, followed by a year of parole. So it was like 18 plus a year of parole, total 10 years with the condition that for the next six, if I get in serious trouble, I finish the 10. So 10 minus 18. What's your mindset going into sentencing? Cause you don't know anything about uh, the time, like Nolly, the plea or anything like that. You're going into sentencing thinking you're getting 10 years in prison right. or up to 10 years in prison. Right. What's going on in your mind? At that point I had nine months to fight the case and nine months to figure out to ex- like it's been nine months since your arrest to sentencing. Right, so right. it sped up pretty quickly. It did. Okay. And um, we weren't able to drag it out any longer. Um, I was hoping that staying sober and going to all these programs would help me stay out. And Were you working at all? No, no. I, I didn't have a job. And that, that's one thing that I'm like really trying to push to help people post-incarceration that can't find work. Right. Because I wouldn't have been able to start this job had I not been so motive or business had I not been so motivated uh, or um, resourceful enough to ask questions and figure out how to put this thing together because no one was hiring me. No one. Sentencing, you go in there and you're, you're facing 10 years. When the judge reads you that sentence, are you relieved that it wasn't as bad as as it could have been? Absolutely. Absolutely. But then you had to realize that you were going to jail too at the same time. Right. So the first thing that I said, I was there with my girlfriend, my mother, and my younger brother. And I told them all, like, yo, I know you're all sad. Do not cry. Did they take you in that day? They did. They slapped the cuffs on you right away. Right there. So there's yeah. no self-surrendering in, in the state prison. No. They just take you. Like in TV, they when someone's found guilty at trial, they just take you right away. Right. So that's very different from federal cases because like in my case, when I was found guilty, I was allowed to continue to be on bond uh, up until sentencing. Well, or until in my case, when I got my bond revoked. So in your case, they took you in right away. What's going through your mind at that point when you're getting hauled out of the courtroom and on your way to jail? You've never been to jail before. Right. It's crunch time. I, what's going through my mind is it's crunch time. I, I'm now toughen up, accept it, make the best of it, figure out what to do. And my thought was that, damn, I'm scared, right? All I have for experience, like my family members have never been to jail. I don't think my family members have even been in real trouble. Um, you see experiences of being in prison on TV. Um, and it was misleading. I'm going into a level two facility though. So my attorney had told me like, listen, it's not going to be dangerous, not going to be violent. You're going in with a bunch of people. It's going to be like summer camp. He didn't say exactly that, but more or less, that's what he said. Um, so we sit down, we, uh, I'm sentenced, I'm taken away. And when we're walking downstairs, they're like, this whole, uh, there's like a, a large jail cell in Bridgeport court. Um, and then there are a couple small, um, private jail cells. So they put me in the small one because they knew it was my first time. I was very polite to everyone. And, uh, they put me in the small 
I just started doing push-ups. Right this, away. You right. got sent into prison 10 minutes earlier and you're sitting there doing push-ups. Yeah, I had nothing else to do. So Were you a certain like authority and dominance or whatnot? Or? No, no. I just figured like this is what it is, you know? Wow. And, and I told you I was out of shape, right? So my whole thing was that like... It's okay. I was that fat kid in prison that was uh, trying to do push-ups and sit-ups the first weekend. Right. Because there's like this mentality. You go to prison, bam, you got to start working out and getting lean, getting buff. I said, if there was one thing I was going to take from this is, was I was going to transform my body. Right. And, and that's, that's kind of where I was at too, because I thought to myself, like, all right, I've been lying to myself for the last eight months that I was going to get back in shape, uh, or, or get in better shape. Um, are you strip searched right then and there too? Yes. When you're processed in? Yep. What's that feeling like to do the squat and cough and get strip searched? It was terrible. Very yeah. demeaning, demoralizing. Definitely demoralizing. Uh, and I think that, but, but you know what? I'm so petty that one of the things I was most concerned about was they cut the string off my North Face jacket, right? Not allowed to have this. Right. I didn't know that or I would have cut it myself. But I went in with like uh, two pairs of sweatpants, three t-shirts on that day, a whole bunch of underwear, which I then found out that you can't wear sweatpants with pockets. And you can't have V-neck t-shirts. So I ended up wearing all these clothes just to be stripped down and put back into a, a jumpsuit. And now you get to the prison. What's the first day in prison like? Are you making friends? Are you meeting people? Is anyone trying you because of your age? So a lot of people were asking me like, oh, like, oh you're fresh in. This is my first time. This and that. We're in the uh, ice cream truck. We're brought from the courthouse to Bridgeport they County. They call it the ice cream truck. That's what they call, what do they call it in federal? It was just like the transport van. Oh yeah, in yeah. in uh, Bridgeport they call it the ice cream truck. So they have uh, two benches uh, separated by a wall in the middle, and you got about six, eight guys back there. Luckily, it was like temperate conditions. It was not hot, um, so it wasn't that uncomfortable. But we're all chained together, and uh, one guy, oh, what are you in for? Blah blah blah. Everyone's asking me, and I tell them, and. Um, it was like, I don't know, I was just ready. So we get to Bridgeport County. First thing I see is one of my elementary school friends was a CO. I'm like, here we go, right? Um, we get in the uh, this whole room. We get the strip search, squat and cough, put on this jumpsuit, this and that, give me whatever they took. Um, the clothes that weren't allowed in prison and then uh, were in county jail. And then... Uh, they just kind of shipped us off to what at that point was called at that time was called the blocks. So it's like if you get arrested in the jail and you don't get bonded out that day, you go to the blocks to await sentencing or your hearing or whatever. Um, but for whatever reason, the whole crew that I came in with went straight to the blocks. So this is the single cell, two beds. Um, so you were in a cell your whole sentence? No, only for the first month. So you're supposed to, if you're sentenced, you're supposed to be out of there very quickly. But for whatever reason, they yeah, kept, the right, and no one was transferred in or out. And we kept going on lockdown so that, like, what should have been, like, an hour lunch, breakfast, and dinner, uh, and then, like, maybe an hour of TV time at the end of the day or something, ended up being, like, no calls, don't leave, you know? Once you got through intake, got processed, settled in, you did this first month in a normal prison setting, what's a typical day like? What, are you in a cell? Are you in a dorm? What's the setting of this prison? So for about a month, I was in a cell. I didn't have any commissary 
this is something I want to touch on. I I think that it it sounds so crazy, but when you're going to prison, I think that you should be, have, have a period, someone that briefs you on like what to expect, right? Based on level, like, are you going in on a Friday? When are commissary slips due? Because I'm coming in blind. I don't know anything about commissary. All I know is that I have money on my books and I want to, um, I want to get something to snack on. Right? So, I missed the first commissary slip. They won't take it. It's policy. I understand. Uh, then I got to wait a week, but then we were on lockdown and I'm sitting in the cell the first night. Um, my bunkie is, uh, the Spanish guy. The whole time we were in intake, people are asking, what did you do? What did you do? And he's like, you don't want to know, man. About, about the Spanish guy, the Spanish guy. Right. He's saying like, you don't want to know. And everyone's like, uh, thinking like, all right, something's up. But then they keep asking him, pressing him. He's just like, you don't want to know. And then the next morning, I got a funnier story after this. The next morning, uh, we're watching the news or it was lunch or something. And he's on the television talking about how he did some stuff with like a a very, very young child. So So there's sex offenders and violent criminals in the state prison with you. Right. Because at this point it was only County. So County is technically considered like a level four or something. Everyone's sent there before they're shipped off to everywhere else. Did anyone think you were a sex offender because you were white and young? So I don't know, no one's ever accused me of being a sex offender, but I didn't know that you needed your paperwork to prove it if anyone did ask. They have paperwork in state prisons too. They do, so it's like your intake form that lists your charges or or whatever it is. And I was like, I don't need this, so I just threw it away, right? And um, a lot of people asked me like, like, oh, what are you in for, whatever? And I would explain, they'll ask like, you have your papers, Maybe a few. I say a lot, but maybe two or three the whole stay. Um, but no, I didn't have them. So I'll just try to explain. And then I was just like, listen. How old I, are you right now at this point? And right now? No, Today? At, no, at, the, at this point oh. and when you're in prison for the first time. Uh, when I first went away, I was 27. 27. 27. It was 2000. No, no. Yeah, 2017. Did you have to get in any fights at all? Never. I've never fought. So you kind of stayed out of the way, kept to yourself? Right, exactly. That was one thing that the attorney told me, like, go in, be quiet, just do what you got to do, get out. No one ever tried to give you a hard time? Uh, there, there was one guy that tried to press me for a minute, but I've just kind of like ignored it. And I was just like, like, for instance, when I finally got commissary and I was being transferred to a different facility, um... They said like, oh, you're not supposed to take your commissary with you. You're supposed to leave it here. And they, I think that they were just trying to take advantage of that. I didn't know anything. Um, but obviously I took it. And then when like I was walking out, they yell, whatever they yell. like. Did you see any slang. contraband at all? There, in level two, there aren't any. So where I was ultimately transferred was level two. In the meantime, in the county, there are things like um, people strip the wires on plugs to boil water, right? Or um, Yeah, we called it a stinger. Right, exactly, stinger. Uh, so there's stingers. I didn't see any like dangerous weapons. Um, any cell phones or drugs? I did not see any cell phones or drugs, no. But I did see uh, like TVs. So uh, TVs that were purchased, what they call off the land, do they say that in federal? All right, so it's pretty much just like when you're in the, the the large dorm, if someone has a TV, they leave it if they're getting um, released. And then the people will just sell it, and they call it like that you're buying it from off, uh, off the land. So 
I had a TV that I bought off someone else, uh, which later found out that it was technically contraband. What can you get on a prison TV? Is it just like anything? Can you get Netflix on it? What are you doing? So I was, this was pre-Netflix. Okay. But what most people don't know is that you get free cable in prison. Free cable. In level two prison in Connecticut, we had free cable. So my recommendation, if you go to prison, buy a TV immediately. Because, and I don't know that this is the same in federal or out of Connecticut. We didn't get any TVs. And no TVs. No TVs to purchase. That's miserable. I mean, there is TVs in like the TV rooms and stuff, but yeah, there's no personal TVs. No, th- this place really was like summer camp. Everybody had a, a, everyone had their own personal TV. Everyone's level two, been there a while, ready to get out. This is pretty much just like me waiting at this point. Like I'm, I'm, calm like everyone's kicked back i I remember do you watch the show chicago pd i've heard of it. i've never watched all right it. so it's like one of my favorite tv shows and one thing that i was most disappointed about when i was going away is like i'm gonna be gone for god knows how long so you can watch i'm gonna your, miss yeah. all my favorite tv shows right so when i finally got a tv dude it was the biggest relief because then like wednesday night at nine o'clock i'm kicked back i'm just watching chicago pd I had so many shows that I was watching, like Criminal Minds. I was watching um, all these different shows, really, before I went to prison. I just stopped watching all them because it's hard to be on a schedule when you're in federal (laughs) prison. Everyone has their own different types of TV hours. There's, you know, reality TV on this one. There's Love After Lockup on this one. There's all these different things, sports on another one. So you kind of can't just go in as a new guy and say, hey, I want to watch Criminal Minds, you know, every (laughs) Wednesday at 7. So that was like one of those things that I missed. And when I got out, you know, I started catching up. I'm still catching up on these shows (laughs) from years ago. Um, But that's interesting. You know, it's good. You got a TV and got that experience. But in the, in the mean, that was at my final destination before I was ultimately released on parole or to a halfway house. Um, But it was, it was interesting to see in the dorm setting, there's one TV, right? And everyone gathers to watch that television, probably like you or like your area. And um, at 11 a.m., The Price is Right is on. And I'm saying, why don't we all just watch The Price is Right, right? But these people want to watch like Wendy Williams. Or uh, I think at that point, Tia and Tamara had a talk show or something like that. They love the court shows too, the Dr. Phil, and then the other one that's filmed in Connecticut. Uh, right, the, Judge the, Judy. No. Yeah, or the, the Maury show. Maury, yeah, right. They love that show too. So this is what I was trying to say. Like, why are we watching this garbage TV when we could watch The Price is Right, you know? Um, but it, it's really interesting to see like what this group of what sh- like uh, are probably considered like violent males want to watch in the middle of the day they want to see Tia and Tamara on a talk show rather than Drew Carey crack some jokes you know everyone that goes to prison has that you know moment that it hits them where they get to reflect on everything that they did to bring them to that moment no matter how much time you got all these people individuals women men whatever have this moment when was that moment for you and what did you reflect on all right so my second night in county uh 
I'm a big believer in fate, and I think that this was one of the the, the moments that made that decision that I w- would believe in fate, because there's no way that this is coincidental. But I hopped into the the first cell. It was my second night after that um, uh, Spanish kid got taken out, and I got a new bunkie. And I'm looking through like books that someone had left over, and as a bookmark in one of the books, there was this uh, story. I don't remember the name, but it was a uh, it was like mythology, and there was a story about this king that believed that he was such a strong, uh, he had so much influence over his country, he said, I'm so powerful that I can control even the tide. And he put his, uh, he posted his throne at the edge of the beach and he commanded the tide not come in. And the tide eventually came in and he didn't move and it drowned him. So, and that was the end of his reign as king. So me reading that at that time had so much symbolism because I was thinking like, wow, my whole life I've been trying to control all of these situations and manipulate these people and do whatever I wanted. And I think I have this grand plan and then I end up here. And that's when I knew like I got to make a change. And that's why I say like I was so calm when I was in there because like I was trying really, really hard not to get angry or aggressive with anybody because I'm not trying to start anything. And then right when I, to- I-, I spoke with this older gentleman that told me uh, he had been in for a while, he was coming down. And he said, like, don't worry about the full 18. You're going to get off on transitional transitional parole, right? First time, nonviolent, you only do 33%. So he was right, and I just kept pressing the court, uh, or I'm sorry, the, uh, the counselors, who are not really counselors, by the way. They're just COs with a title that know nothing about counseling or court programs, Um and I just kept pressing them until they actually got the paperwork in and helped me go through the process. Um, How much time do you do on this 18-month sentence? Six months. And what's that first day of prison or out of prison like for you? Oof. First day, all right, I remember when I pulled up to the halfway house, they had a yard with like a whole bunch of gym equipment and a basketball hoop. And um, what I didn't know is that the halfway house has like four beds dedicated to regular people and eight beds dedicated to pedophiles. So it was, or people with like sexual charges. Uh, I shouldn't say just pedophiles, sexual charges. So luckily me and the two guys in my room were normal. Um, And I met this older guy, Jeff, and me and him walked in the backyard. And I remember like it was the first time I saw like a view, right? Because I went to Middletown for the halfway. and Middletown has a higher elevation. So like you can see like into the mountains and like the, the beautiful clouds in the sky. And then the other place, uh, it was up North in Connecticut. So there's not really any of that. You look up, you see a blue sky. It's not like a beautiful scenery. It's just farmland surrounding. Right. And I remember I looked at the sky and I was just like in shock, like, damn, bro, I'm finally here. And because I make light and I make a lot of jokes about it and I have a billion funny stories that I could probably tell, but it was like, there was a lot of time in there that I was depressed and it was just like me laying under my blanket and just like, fuck this. I cannot believe I'm here another day. I wake up, I have to use the bathroom in the morning. I got to wait for the CO to make her rounds to ask permission. Like, how did I get myself in this situation? I can't even go to the bathroom without asking. Um, I want to have a, I want to keep my TV on past nine o'clock. Can't do it. You know, um, just simple stuff like that, that, that the liberties that we have now that are just taken away. And and then, um, you get out and you hit the halfway house and it's like, you have 
some of it back. But what was most difficult in the halfway house is that I come out with this like aggressive mentality, just not acting aggressive. And then you're around a whole bunch of people that had been there for a minute and it's a certain population. So I'm already on like short fuse and I had been locked up for so long that like, I just wanted freedom. So now I'm just like intolerant of everybody and getting myself to a point where I wasn't like angry with the world anymore was very, or angry with myself was very difficult because I was there for such a short period of time. I could not imagine how institutionalized you become after 10 years or four years or even two years, right? I was there for six months. I felt institutionalized the way that I folded my laundry, the way that I stacked everything in my locker, the six bags of coffee that I took with me from prison to a halfway house, just because I love the coffee more than regular, right? Like, um, when you got out of prison, was there ever any thoughts about getting back into dealing drugs or doing drugs? Never, 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 not at all. Even being exposed to it. It never even for a while, I stayed away from people that drank. Um, and I never went around anyone that did uh, blow. Now, if I'm around someone that drinks, it doesn't bother me. It's been so long, right? It's just kind of second nature to not do it. And I think that that's uh, uh, 80% of what helped me like change my entire life. What did you do for work when you got out? For about seven months, I had no job. I had no direction and I was super depressed. Part of TP's uh, stipulation is that you need to have someone that's willing to sponsor you to be on parole and live with them. And at that point, that girl that I had been dating before prison. Did she stick with you through the prison sentence? She did, um, in some capacity at least. So she let me live with her. And we were living together and everything was cool, but I was super depressed and I was just like not fun to be around. So eventually that ended. But in the meantime, I was able to serve the rest of my parole uh, or at least TP. Um, and she took care of me for like the whole time. Um, but toward the end of that, I had just been so fed up. So like I had a business name in mind, like I had a marketing plan that I created when, or a business plan that I created when I was in, uh, in prison. And then I just started to put it all together and actually started to make moves so that I can start the job. Because if I had part of what got me depressed on the outside was that like, I have all of this potential, all these, uh, all of this capability. But if I contact a recruiting agency, they don't want to touch me. Um, if, right. The felony is an all automatic disqualifier. Do you think that's the biggest struggle you faced as someone that's getting out with felonies? I think that the two biggest struggles, one being the felon, uh, the felon tag that just disqualifies you from most employment. And then, and the second is mental health, right? Because Similar to when I first got arrested, I thought everyone had seen my article. When I got out, I was assuming that every employer had seen my article. And when I started a business, now I'm getting into these networking events. And I remember I called one of my friends that uh, had been in prison years ago. And I said, like, listen, and he also had a business. And I said, like, listen, I'm going to this event. They want me to present next week. Do you think I should start by tell, like, telling them that I had been arrested? He's like, absolutely. Do not start with that, right? But like, that's how I was trying to present myself at first. Like, oh, my name is Brian. I, w- I had such a complex that like people would just be judging me and disqualify, uh, automatically uh, exclude me from any event or collaboration or, or uh, employment opportunity 
anything just because I had this tag. But what I really didn't know is that like, if I continued to work on myself, time would pass and the complex would be less because the complex is what made me so insecure, ultimately reinforcing all of the negative interactions with these people. How do you go from, how do you go from former drug addict, former inmate, labeled as a felon when you got out of prison to becoming a successful business owner? It was a lot of work. It was a lot of time. Um, It was a lot of, there were a lot of mistakes. So I went into business uh, with somewhat of a plan. How long ago after prison was that? Uh, I started the business late 2017. And that's how long after? Maybe three months. Three months after. I started the business three months after I had been released from the halfway house. Right. Um, Maybe maybe four. Um, But I started because I already had a business plan. I took the steps to find out like, how do I register with the state of Connecticut? Uh, Once I register with them, how do I register with the IRS? How do I keep track of this accounting? I'm no accountant, right? But maybe I can keep track of it in like a spreadsheet. But I've met people that have come out of uh, being locked up and they have no idea of how to even open a Word document, right? So imagine me being in the the corporate position that I was in before, so I had a lot of familiarity. minus all of those technical abilities and minus any idea of what the Connecticut Secretary of State website is, right? Like, I would have been in a much, much worse position. But because I had that capability, I was able to put all these pieces together and at least start something that would eventually, even though I struggled for like two or three years uh, to really build a brand, something that would eventually grow into something much larger than I thought it would be. Did you ever want to quit while you were doing it? Go all, work a normal job? All the time. Until I got a taste of freedom. What kept you going? The, honestly, the only thing that kept me going for a couple of years was the fact that I couldn't get another job. People would say, listen, I got turned down for a job roofing. Just a general laborer. Because you were a felon? Because I was a felon. Just a general laborer. I'm sure there are plenty of people that do roofing or general labor that are felons. That's great. I'm sure that part of the reason that I was turned down is because I've got limited to no construction experience, but that was very discouraging. Right. So it was at that point, either like I just continue to not work or I just try to put in the time to make this grow. And luckily I had that girlfriend at the time that was like helping pay the, like she was paying the bills so you could focus on your dream. Right. And then it finally took off and now here you are. Right. That's awesome, man. Right. Thank you. Now, what would you say to someone that was the younger you that's either maybe getting out of high school or e- even maybe is just an adult or a middle-aged adult and is selling drugs or wants to get into selling drugs and is a part of that lifestyle? What would you say to them? What's your advice after everything you've been through, where you're at now? What are you telling these individuals? If I had to pass on some of my experience to someone who has the interest in getting into the lifestyle of drugs or crime or just overall a bad scene, I would probably just say on a high level, don't do it. But what I would tell them is because not only does it put you in the position to become worse, but it it, it, it doesn't only put you in the position to be 
what I would consider, had I continued down that path, failure. But it puts you in the experience, in the position to treat people poorly, to to find yourself isolated, no no job. Like I, I think the negatives, there are far more negatives than positives in the situation. There, there's, I don't believe that there's any real benefit to it. And if you watch any crime movie, the kingpin never gets away, right? Scarface. He's idolized, but he, right, he's, he's idolized, idolized but he's prison. ultimately dead. Yeah, or right? he's in prison. Right. There's, I, I've not watched one movie where where it's been a, a happy ending for the for the person that's doing that. And I don't think that that's based off of, uh, I'm sure that there are some people that are sitting in their house right now counting money and uh, maybe have never been arrested or will never be, but it's not very frequent. And it's it's just, you're not setting yourself up for success in that situation. I don't think many people realize how relatable, just like an individual, like your story is relatable to them. There's so many people that are, you know, selling drugs or using and abusing alcohol or drugs or whatever it is that they're doing or even gambling and they're thinking to themselves, well, you know, this is all I can be, this is all I'm good for and they keep going down that path and they keep associating with individuals that are enabling that and then you look at a story like yours where you were in that exact position and you were able to, you know, hit the lowest point of your life. You're you're in prison for being an addict and selling drugs. And now here you are as a successful entrepreneur. I think that gives people some hope in that mindset that they can go through a shitty situation and come out on top of it. So, I hope so too. I hope so too. And I appreciate the consideration. Um, with the right attitude, what I've found is that with the right attitude and, and by doing your research and being persistent, we can all make something of ourselves, right? You just have to have the right ideas. And if you're not the most mathematically inclined, then don't go for math or learn math, right? Like there, there's a way to get around nearly anything. And and that's part of uh, that level of ingenuity kind of came from when I was a child, always trying to get out of trouble or something like that. But it's transitioned and, and, and I've learned how to sculpt it into something that's a, a huge asset for me now. Um, and I think that that's something that anyone can really do with the right mindset. Absolutely, man. Oh. Well, I thank you for coming on. Uh, to our viewers, thank you who are listening, watching. Thank you for tuning in to Locked In with Ian Bick. Make sure you subscribe, follow us, and we'll see you on next week's episode.